0: Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast, I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 17 on February 17th, 2017. Well, that's a lot of 17th. I'm coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us today. Our main topic is The World Without Us, a book by Alan Wiseman. We'll also have our weekly regular news roundup, research updates, and an event calendar. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you can find both of our podcasts. So today I wanted to spend a little time talking about a book I read recently called The World Without Us by Alan Wiseman. This was out in 2007 from Thomas Dunn Books. And while I'm not going to be able to get into every corner of this book, I hope I can give you a little bit of an overview and a taste that is interesting enough that you might want to pick up this one for yourself. The premise of the book is basically, what if humans just disappeared tomorrow, just gone? This could be the the rapture or a pandemic that kills us all overnight, or who knows why, humans are just dead and gone. And I remember when I was a kid and I would go snowshoeing or skiing out in the woods usually I'd get to thinking about what would the world be like if everybody disappeared and Fox has a new sitcom called The Last Man on Earth that kind of explores this in a bit more comedic way. Spoiler alert he's not quite the last man on earth but I used to think about this all the time when I was a kid, and Alan Weissman has taken this to the next level and has not only imagined what would happen if humans disappeared, but he's also visited many places around the globe where humans have, in fact, largely disappeared, and he's looked at how infrastructure has been taken back over by nature. And I want to start out with a brief quotation. So this is on page three. A generation ago, humans eluded nuclear annihilation. With luck, we'll continue to dodge that and other mass terrors. But now we often find ourselves asking whether, inadvertently, we've poisoned or parbroiled the planet, ourselves included. We've also used and abused water and soil so that there's a lot less of each, and trampled thousands of species that probably aren't coming back. Our world, some respected voices warn, could one day degenerate into something resembling a vacant lot, where crows and rats scuttle among weeds, preying on each other. If it comes to that, at what point would things have gone so far that... For all our vaunted superior intelligence, we're not among the hardy survivors. And so the rest of the book really just ex- continues to explore this premise. What if we all just disappeared? What would happen to the earth with the systems we have in place right now? And he really travels to many different parts of the world. Um, the first one he goes to is the Bustia Biaweska, which I'm sure I'm butchering. It is a, an old forest, an old-growth forest in Poland. It's one of the last remaining old-growth forests in Europe. And he wanted to see what things look like after 500 years without human clearing. And he sees these large trees and a sanctuary for a variety of different animals. But really, it's such a small island, it might not be indicative of what happens if humans were to disappear from the face of Europe entirely. And if you've never been to an old-growth forest, which means one that hasn't seen human clearing, um, I... Would highly recommend that you go online and find one near you and take a trip uh, to go hiking some weekend if if you don't have a, if you haven't had a chance to go to one yet you can find lists of this just simply by googling uh, list of old growth forests um, Wikipedia has a pretty extensive list there are three here in Wisconsin the Apostle Islands National Lakeshore Chihuahuan Nicolette National Forest which I'm sure I'm butchering that name apologies and the Namakagon Barrens where there are jack pine and scrub oak. So, there are places in most states where there are old-growth forests, so uh, check that out if you haven't been to one yet. It's certainly worth uh, a nice contemplative walk. Wiseman also traces the destruction of our houses. Um, Moisture would work in around the roof flashing, and mold and fungi would begin to break down the cellulose of the wood frame, and within a half a century, your house would probably be a pile of sagging timbers, if it hasn't already collapsed. The metal parts would oxidize and the last vestige would be the stone masonry. But even that would crumble over time. Hundreds of years later, your house might just be a depression in the forest floor where your basement used to be. Only real stone buildings, and I'm not talking about veneer, I'm talking about real cut stone buildings, uh, would be the only ones that would survive long term. Although even their roofs would collapse and you can see a lot of, for example, Viking buildings that were made out of field stone where the roof has collapsed but the structure itself has remained intact. Weissman also goes to New York, where the 753 pumps keeping the city from flooding would fall silent when its people disappeared, and water would undermine every foundation. Without bridge maintenance, the George Washington would rust and collapse in a few centuries, but not before coyotes, deer, bear, wolves, and other critters would cross into what we used to call Manhattan. There's a really nice analogy from Tyler Volk, Uh, who's faculty at NYU, he equates our own CO2 emissions to volcanoes. We're pulling carbon up from under the earth and spewing it out into the atmosphere, which is essentially what a volcano does. It's releasing a lot of underground compounds up into the atmosphere. He says, quote, Say there are no more people burning fuel. At first, the ocean's surface will absorb CO2 rapidly. As it saturates, that slows. It loses some CO2 to photosynthesizing organisms. Slowly, as the seas mix, it sinks, and ancient, unsaturated water rises from the depths to replace it. It takes 1,000 years for the ocean to completely turn over, but that doesn't bring the earth back to pre-industrial purity. Ocean and atmosphere are more in balance with each other, but both are still supercharged with CO2. So is the land, where excess carbon will cycle through soil and life forms that absorb it, but eventually release it. So where can it go? Normally, says Folk, The biosphere is like an upside-down glass jar. On top, it's basically closed to any extra matter, except for letting in a few meteors. At the bottom, the lid is slightly open to volcanoes. The problem is, by tapping the carboniferous formation and spewing it up into the sky, we've become a volcano that hasn't stopped erupting since the 1700s. End quote. The excess warmth caused by the additional CO2 emissions has pushed back the next ice age 15,000 years. Ice ages come in cycles and it's very likely that because of our emissions, we've pushed back when the next one would come. Unless, of course, there are options where we might see uh, runaway cooling. For example, a melting Greenland could disrupt the Gulf Stream and this would plunge Europe into a near ice age. And so there are a lot of variables and that's what makes predictive modeling so difficult. It doesn't mean we don't have a direction and we have a general idea of where things are going, but the exact course that things are going to take is really difficult to nail down. This doesn't mean that there's equivocation on the part of 97% of climate scientists that putting a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere increases the overall temperature of the Earth. There are other things that affect the Earth's temperature, and we might knock them out of whack, and it's not clear exactly how the Earth is going to react to this rapid of warming. We're living through a new experiment on the Earth. After humans disappear, paradoxically, Africa, where humans and their ancestors have lived the longest, would reach its post-human state the quickest, as it has less modified floral and faunal landscape. That is, apex predators, pockets of old growth, large herd animals, and others still exist, even if the environment has been and will continue to be affected by human activity after we're gone in this scenario. The reason probably for that is the the large animals and uh, environment there have adapted with humans. And so unlike North America, where humans were new on the scene and large, tasty mammals like ground sloths weren't necessarily afraid of them because they didn't have small predators like us and so because those animals and biospheres in Africa evolved with humans they are in a more steady state now already rather than being knocked out of whack by new humans coming in. And therefore once humans are removed it's going to revert or it's going to transition into a post-human landscape much more quickly. Some modern cities like Varshoa Cyprus have been abandoned and kind of give us a glimpse into future urban decay. In this case Sand is seen blowing through broken windows, ornamental creepers obscure buildings, and a kingdom of pigeons holds sway. Plastics will survive, and although UV radiation and physical erosion will break them down into ever smaller particles, they will become completely permeated throughout the environment. Many of you have heard of the large field of plastic bits suspended in the North Pacific gyre. If you haven't, check out Vice News, which has a video about the giant plastic patch in the North Pacific. I'd suggest checking that out for a a view of people uh, sailing through it to test for particulate matter. I'll link to that video and this book on our podcast page. This is an example writ large of the amount of plastics we've contributed to the environment. Although it will photodegrade, that is, when it's exposed to sun, plastic degrades, much of it will become... Part of our long-term geological legacy, as nothing has evolved to eat plastic, and this is unlike any other organic material, has something in the environment that breaks it down, whether it's fungi or animal. Plastics haven't been on the scene long enough to have something evolve that can metabolize them. Pretty much all plastic ever produced still exists in some form on the Earth today, unless it's been incinerated. On the average, one tire per person is discarded across America, every year. Think of just the amount of tires that when they are vulcanized they create one single giant molecule which is kind of neat but on the other hand it doesn't break down readily and it doesn't break up and therefore that one tire per person per year still exists somewhere in the environment in some form and unless they catch on fire which they happen to do readily they're going to exist for probably quite a long time. Weisman travels to Houston and considers oil refineries Without people, pressures would build up, and once power and backup generators died, one fire would spread and become many, burning in a massive inferno until all the oil was gone. Worse are the natural gas wells. Once the wellhead catches fire, high underground pressures would drive combustible natural gas to the surface for years, decades, or even longer. Imagine a 300-foot column of fire burning for generations. Without humans and the large mammals we've killed off, grassland and agricultural land will revert back to prairie and forest over the ensuing centuries. None of our domesticates would survive very many seasons, at least not in recognizable form. Wheat would go back to its wild grass state, soy, similar. Corn would likely revert back to its Teosinte ancestor. Much of the plants that we depend on have been specifically bred to be easily digestible, which is a problem if you don't have humans to protect you. Furthermore, many of the plants we grow are hybrids and their offspring don't breed true. And so very quickly over just a few generations, we would lose a lot of our domesticates. Weissman goes on to look at nuclear reactors and counts the 441 nuclear reactors around the world. And I've done a bit of research into this myself and essentially, if people disappeared all of a sudden, things would run just fine for a little while. Once the grid went down, the electrical grid that keeps uh, power to all the different stations, we would start to run into problems because even though nuclear power plants generate electricity, they rely on outside electricity to ensure that they have all of their safety features in place. What are we talking about for safety features? Well, really briefly, nuclear power plant works by letting nuclear material decay in a controlled hopefully controlled state that heats up liquid which then heats up water which turns into steam that steam drives turbines cools down and goes back to get heated again by the nuclear fluid now there's a lot of pressure built up and a lot of heat and to keep that core from overheating and melting down It has to have a constant circulation of cooling fluid. That fluid is driven by electric pumps. Now, if the electricity goes down and those pumps die, it's just like driving your car without a radiator. Eventually, you're going to burn out your engine. The same thing happens in a nuclear reactor. It would melt down, and once the coolant boiled off to the point that the nuclear fuel touched the air and could reach oxygen, you could have a small explosion. It wouldn't be a nuclear explosion, but it would certainly be a steam and pressure vessel explosion that spewed radioactive elements across the landscape. So we definitely want to avoid that. Now, when the grid's power goes out, every nuclear plant in the United States is mandated to have seven days worth of generator fuel on hand. After that seven days, in theory, a fuel truck would come, and replenish the fuel, and in theory, one could run the generators indefinitely to keep everything circulating and keep the core cool. Eventually what would happen is the core would cool down enough that once the coolant stops circulating, it would melt down, but it would be a contained meltdown. It would melt down in itself, in its containment vessel, and wouldn't explode and wouldn't release those uh, radioactive particles into the atmosphere. The problem is that takes at least six months. And I did some research on this. Um, I called the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the nation's watchdog for nuclear power plants, and asked them what would happen if the power went out indefinitely. And they said seven days of gas. And they said, and after that it would be filled by tankers. And I said, well, how many tankers, how often would you need to keep it going? And they said, we don't know because we don't consider this to be a realistic scenario that the the grid goes down and so i did some back of the napkin math and it turns out that you need about for the standard generators that are at most of the plants you need an entire tanker, like an 18-wheeler tanker of gasoline or diesel fuel better said every two days for six months just to keep the nuclear fuel cool so that it can eventually be let to melt down in a contained fashion Now, that's if humans are there to regulate this the whole time. If humans aren't there, the water or the coolant in the reactor itself would boil off, eventually letting the container explode, like I said. And even if that didn't happen, the spent fuel, fuel that is still radioactive but not to the point of being used for driving the nuclear power plant, is kept in a large containment pool inside a less shielded building, on the nuclear facility and that's kept in a big pool of water to keep it cool as that water would evaporate eventually even those would hit the atmosphere and cause potential Chernobyl like explosions again there's 441 nuclear plants around the world and even if 10 of those turned into Chernobyl's or Fukushima Daiichi's we would have considerable concern for the plants and animals that remained on the earth So I'm going to leave it there with that terrifying look into the world without humans. I recommend you find this book. Again, it's called The World Without Us by Alan Weissman. It's easy to read, well written. He travels the globe looking at a lot more examples of what could happen. He interviews experts. He looks at places that have already been abandoned. He goes to the town around Chernobyl already. It's a fascinating look at what could be if we all disappeared somehow. And I say it's worth a read not because I think that we're all going to disappear anytime soon but because it gives you an insight into the degradation that can happen to our infrastructure that we often take for granted. So I highly recommend it. Give that a read if you're looking for something new. Now let's take a look at this weekend low-tech news. The Conversation blog has a piece about preparing for epidemics by improving primary care and I heartily agree with this position. It doesn't make any sense to wait until the last minute to take care of chronic problems? Because in a pandemic situation, not only are we going to have to take care of the regular medical problems, we're going to have to deal with this exploding situation of a pandemic. And so wouldn't it make sense to have all of your primary care already taken care of proactively? This means thinking ahead, which is not necessarily something we like to do, but coming up with the vaccines of potential pandemics ahead of time, for example, had people really put their shoulder to the wheel, they might have had a vaccine for Ebola before thousands of people died in Africa a couple summers ago. It wasn't until it had the chance of spreading out of Africa and affecting other continents that a vaccine was rushed into production. Why not have done it earlier? NPR has finished a series of nice illustrated videos showing the rise and evolution of germs in human beings. Many of our maladies are bugs that we caught from our close association with animals and living in tight quarters as we urbanized. So check out that video. We've got a few stories about biking this week, including uh, one about winter bike commuting, which is a thing, and I'm someone who's done it for quite a while, and it's pretty enjoyable. And another story about Oslo's subsidy for residents to buy cargo bikes. I'm currently uh, rehabbing a bicycle trailer to use in a similar way that people would use cargo bikes. Check out the neat electric bikes that they're uh, subsidizing in Norway. There are a few more stories about how wind power is on the rise and a large coal plant is being shut down, and there's the pros and cons about both of those. Another story discusses why NOAA sometimes updates its climate data. And I got my dander up because I was on YouTube looking for some NOAA videos and I found another couple of videos about how NOAA is lying to us and climate change and things like that. And out of curiosity, I watched them and it was frustrating that as somebody who is comfortable looking at the earth science behind a lot of what NOAA is doing, the misinterpretation, and I'm going to be, I don't know that it was purposeful misinterpretation, let's hope that it was just lack of background knowledge that caused the people to say that Noah was lying to us, but there was a lot of misinterpretation of facts and charts to the point where the argument that they were making was not based on actual reading of the facts and the charts, and they were saying that Noah was lying to them by citing data incorrectly, so it was pretty frustrating. Um, It's important to understand that sometimes climate models get updated, and that's what Noah was doing this last week. It's not nefarious. If it was nefarious, they wouldn't be doing it in public. Those are some of the stories we're following in low-tech news. To see links to the stories we discussed, send us a news tip, and more, visit the low-tech website, that's lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com, or you can follow the link in our podcast profile. Now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute, we are just about to come out of winter and as we find a new property to move into we're going to have a lot of projects going. Um, Right now I've got mushrooms in the basement and hopefully my mycelium continues to grow. I am rehabbing a bike trailer so that I'll be able to haul larger loads on my bicycle. We're making uh, mead and cider and a couple other projects around the kitchen Uh, but for the most part we're just kind of quietly waiting until we have our formal location with workshops and things like that. And Now I do want to mention a new feature on our website that is the events calendar. Not only will this calendar have events and workshops that we, the LowTech Institute, are hosting, but it will also have links to organizations in the area that also have useful and interesting workshops, speakers, or events going on that you might be interested in. So head to our website and on the main menu bar, all the way to the right, you'll find something that says event calendar. Have a click there and you can look through the different events. Right now, it's not very full calendar, but we're working with local partners to get their events on our calendar. If you have an event in the Madison area, send me an email, lowtechinstitute at gmail.com with the details, and I'll be sure to include it on our calendar. That's all we have this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our entry music was The Language of Blame off the album Matthew by The Agrarians. That song is under the Creative Commons Sharealike Non-Commercial and Attributions License. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio, and please give us a rating or tell your friends. It helps boost our audience reach. You can find more information about the Low Technology Institute at low-tech-institute, that's all one lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Word, you can follow us on Twitter at low underscore techno, and also reach me directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. I'd be happy to have your feedback. Thanks, and take care.